morning. Welcome to the Food Professor Podcast, episode 22. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm Sylvain Chalabois. The Food Professor is presented by Omnovos, the digital customer engagement solution for grocery and restaurant marketers, helping you solve your customers' most daunting questions. What should I eat today? Find out how you can get personal growth sales with Omnovos at realcustomerengagement.com. Well, Sylvain, uh, it is the 17th of March today, which means only one thing. Happy St. Patrick's Day, or we're celebrating St. Patrick's Day. The luck of the Irish. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Have you ever done a DNA test? You know, those, those DNA <laughs> so 23 and Me things? Are you asking if I'm Irish? I, I unfortunately not. Now, are you? Well, this is the funny thing. So I, my brother did one because I didn't do one, but, you know, whatever. Um, pretty sure he's my brother, you know, uh, kind of thing. Um <laughs> And, you know, with a name like LeBlanc, we expected a lot of France roots, you know, the Acadian, you know, our, our, the LeBlancs were very early to Canada. But it turns out I'm like 90% Irish. And three or four clicks ago, I had a relative in Dublin and all this stuff. So it's funny, um, you know, the, the impact of the Irish on the world, because they all roll their eyes when you say, hey, I'm part Irish. They're like, yeah, everybody is. So it's just so <laughs> interesting. Uh, and one of my wow. clients is uh, is the Irish government. Actually, I do some work for the Irish government. They have a, a, a they're actually one of the largest VCs in the world, Enterprise Ireland. It's government owned, but they take a stake in the companies they promote. And I bring I've been to Dublin three four times in the past. Uh, well, not in the before time I had just bringing bringing clients over there. So anyway, we're celebrating St Patrick's Day today. We got a great episode right. today. We've got uh, we got an interview with Carl Heinrich uh, from Richmond Station. It's yes, great. We absolutely. you and I. You know, you and I have been talking about getting a, a restaurant tour on and, and um, you know, we talk about the industry, but we also talk about this interesting idea. And you brought it up in earlier episodes about this, what the industry calls hospitality included, right? The no tipping social justice right. thing. Um, so it's a great conversation with Carl. And I wanted for any of the of the listeners, I guess, viewers as well, uh, the, to call out, make sure and listen to my bonus episode or our bonus episode last week with uh, Alexander Gill the uh, food critic for the Globe and Mail. Uh, we had a fun time, uh, her and I, ch- chitting and chatting as a bonus episode in between our main episodes. Did you have a chance to listen yeah. to that episode? Oh, absolutely, and uh, I'm sorry I had to miss it, but uh, I thought you did a really good job uh, allowing uh, Alex to showcase her work and and mm. and, uh, and her art. I mean, she, she is... I think one of the best in the country as far as uh, as uh, analyzing and critiquing the restaurant industry overall. And she has this social conscious uh, that, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, she actually looks at the industry uh, very critically, but uh, constructively as well. I mean, she's, uh, she's, she's done great work. Uh, she's out in Vancouver, but her voice, uh, I think she deserves more attention or her work deserves more attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully that uh, our podcast will give her more uh, mm-hmm. more uh, more of a spotlight, more profile. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hopefully, but, I mean, but your discussion was very was great. You went from you know uh, talking about the future of the industry to to the social justice piece of of the industry, talking about tipping as well and what needs to change and what's what the impact of COVID was on the industry overall. So uh, yeah, it was a it, it was almost half an hour of. Uh, uh, of talk with uh, Alex and it was time well spent. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you. I had a lot of fun. I'm, I'm so curious about the life and the, what I call the trade craft of being a critic. So it was, it was really interesting to me. Well, the, 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 coming- most, the most interesting comment she made is that when she actually bashes a restaurant, it's good for their business. I had no <laughs> <Yeah>. idea. 
<laughs> I thought it was the opposite. <laughs> I, I know. I, th- I think I think it's a short term lift for the restaurant. I'm not sure if it's a sustainable lift when they're not that good. Uh, and and speaking of which, these these some of these bonus interviews, including the one Carl today, are coming out of the Restaurants Canada show. The folks at Restaurants Canada have been kind enough to kind of connect us with some of these people. And actually, we're, I'm going to do another bonus episode next week. I interview the CEO of Voodoo Donuts, this Portland based. Uh, yes. donut shop that is just the hippest place and what's interesting you know we talk about the, the industry but i essence of the conversation is how do you take a small concept like that that's very rooted in the culture and 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 very rooted in the community and grow it without losing its essence and that's the the basically the essence of the conversation that that i have with the ceo is because he, he came over with a big growth mandate you know he grew he was at starbucks 17 million restaurants or whatever but that's how right. do you go from five or seven to more without kind of losing where you, you know, losing that secret sauce or, or secret uh, whatever of, yeah. of the brand secret donut, <laughs> the secret, the secret ingredients and all that stuff. All right. Well, listen, um, we get lots going on uh, and voila, Sobeys buys Longos. So were you, were you surprised at, uh, at that happening? And, and what are your thoughts on, uh, on the deal? Well, I suspect that you weren't surprised. Uh, I, I I wasn't. I would say when I saw the news uh, about this acquisition, uh, I, I thought, well, if I if I had to pick a buyer for Longos, Empire would be it, because uh, Empire is a responsible grocer. It recognizes that there are some issues across the supply chain uh, that really discriminate against independent grocers and that's why i'm for the next episode i'm really pleased to to get an independent grocer invited to our podcast because uh i'm i'm concerned uh i suspect that the longos family had lengthy discussions about the future of their business before committing to this deal when you see walmart and loblaws imposing outrageous fees to manufacturers People tend to forget that independent grocers can't do that. They can't get more, and they're becoming less and less competitive. So I suspect that Longos really looked at the landscape and said, no, so how do we stay afloat uh, with our growth strategy? Because Longos was absolutely very, very aggressive over the last uh, little while. This week, we just learned that Walmart was investing half a billion dollars. Well, they're closing six stores, but they're building a, a new distribution center. Well, that money, some of that money is coming from uh, suppliers. Independent grocers can't do that to remain competitive. And so I suspect that... Now, the, now the, indies, the indies do have buying groups like UGI, Michael, Michael's uh, UGI. So, and, and I think Longo is part of UGI as well, right? Used to. <laughs> yeah. After this deal, they won't because, of course, they'll be using. But I would argue that uh, that uh, Sobe's or Empire's buying power is much more significant than UGI's. UGI's is there to serve a collective of independent grocers, and they've done a great job since 1972. However, uh, you can do so much uh, with UGI, and I think there was that recognition. Even Mike Longo was on the board of UGI, so they did believe right. in UGI, but at some point, uh, something's got to give. For, for Longos, I think that's probably why they committed to, to, the, to the acquisition. Uh, on the other side, Empire, well, they're, they're gaining market share in a very tough market, the GTA. The yeah. Greater Toronto Area is obviously one of the toughest markets in, in the country. Uh, and also, they'll be converting 70,000 grocery gateway 
customers and they'll be uh, bringing them over to uh, voila at Sobe's, I think, uh, which it, will it, that'll, also that'll help. be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be interesting to see what they do. I, now, I, as I've said before, I'm a Longo's shopper. They, they're close by and, and uh, they actually sponsored my kids' soccer team. So I have a little affiliation with them. And I know, I know Anthony and, and Jenny Longo do a fantastic job. And, and oh, uh, absolutely. Uh, Joy Bernardo, one of their fantastic buyers is a good friend of mine. And, um, and you know, I shop them all the time, and and their grocery gateway different service is very different than Voila. What I see in Voila is you can, you know, what I expect to happen in the short term. Who knows the long term is is some of their private label product will appear. I suspect in the Voila tab, just as as Farm oh, Boy probably. product does. The the thing about uh, Sobe's, uh, the priority is not necessarily about the private label it's more about the experience and and of course longos is a premium grocer and so i don't think they'll play around with that uh, if it would have been loblaws for example it would have been it would have been completely different the president's choice agenda will, will would have driven the entire acquisition process i think or the or how they would actually mix together uh with with yeah. sobe's i think they'll be Similar to Farm Boy, I mean, Farm Boy was acquired by Sobeys in 2017, and most most shoppers at Farm Boy uh, probably didn't notice any difference. Wouldn't they wouldn't know, yeah. and I yeah. think that's probably going to happen with uh, with Longos. Yeah, yeah, the, the 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 connection felt right, and even Michael, uh, you know, from Sobeys from Empire, Michael Medline said, you know, basically he, he almost parroted the same words when he was speaking to the public about Farm Boy of Longos. You know, we're not going to mess it up. We're not going to mess with the formula. We're going to keep the formula as it is. And I'm sure, I'm sure the the uh, the family, the Longos family, considered that in terms of you know who knows maybe it had multiple offers. Uh, you know, now when we look at the grocery landscape landscape from coast to coast, um, you know, on the west coast you've got uh, Jim Pattison's group with uh, Save On uh, Foods, who's a fantastic uh, grocer. You've got uh, Federated Co-op in Saskatchewan. And you've got Calgary Co-op, which is actually one of the biggest co-op food co-ops in North America. And we're yeah. fortunate slash lucky, so to speak, and, and timing uh, to have Ken Keeler, the CEO, as our next guest. That's been booked for months, but it's just some nice, uh, you know, we'll be able to chat with him about the landscape, uh, certainly in Calgary. So, you know, as we go coast to coast. So that means I don't think it swizzles the table in terms of the top five, right? So the top five grocers in this country would be uh, in no order, but maybe kind of an order. Long, uh, Loblaws, Empire, Costco. Metro, me- Metro, Metro is number three. Uh, with Metro uh, is number three. I think at eighteen billion, yeah. And then after that, there's a bit of a war between Walmart and Costco, but uh, all of them, all five of them, are selling uh, more than eighty percent of all uh, retail food in Canada right now. That's a, that's a that's a lot of power. And so I'm concerned about diversity because when you go to Longos and you are a customer of Longos, I'm sure you you find products that you would never find elsewhere. And uh, something you didn't know about me, Michael, is that once when I was in Guelph, I actually taught an MBA course, an intensive one-week course at Longos. Uh, at at their headquarters in Vaughn because they yeah. sponsored, they supported a case study. We did a live case study on Grocery Gateway and they wanted us to teach the class at their facility. And uh, so for a week, we spent a week there. It was the best week uh, of my of my career at Guelph. It was such a fun uh, thing. And Gus, the uncle, Anthony's uncle, was always in the classroom all yeah week 
And Anthony came in, the CFO came in, Liz Volk, the uh, vice president of HR came in to, because we had questions about certain things. Everything was confidential, of course, but it was such a great experience. And I got to learn a lot about the company and the culture at Longo's uh, was, was amazing. So I'm a little bit sad to see Longo's being sold, but at the same time, like I said, if I had to pick one buyer, it would have to be Empire. So I was happy that uh, that Sobeys was able to become the caretaker of that culture. You know, I'm a little more sanguine about the diversity than I think you may or may not be, because when you look at the history over the past 20 years, you know, there was a milestone where Long, uh, Loblaws bought Fortinos um, and, and really you know, generally admit they messed it up because they tried to kind of, they, you know, it got subsumed in the Loblaws organization. And at the other end of the scale, you look at TNT and, and similar to Farm Boy. So TNT uh, is across uh, Eastern and Western Canada, Chinese focused ethnic grocer. You yeah. wouldn't know it's owned by Loblaws. There's not a lot of, pri- no. you know, there's not a lot of president's choice. So I think, I think the model is kind of set. Um, and, you know, you've got everything from Freshco, Metro's got uh, ethnic grocers. Like they, they seem to, have learned the lesson that oh, yeah, keeping no, uh, the secret sauce, the secret sauce is, is the secret to the success. Uh, absolutely. So Loblaws did learn. And I mean, let's face it, Loblaws is very good at what, what it does. Uh, and they've learned from their mistakes. Same, same with Empire. I mean, uh, when you look at the, uh, yesterday, I was actually comparing the stock price uh, of, of, uh, of Metro Sobeys and, and Loblaw over the last five years they've all performed well. I mean, the grocery business, yes, it is an oligopoly, but these companies are well managed uh, by talented people. And so, uh, and they are, you're right, uh, Michael, they are learning from their mistakes and, and they're, they're at the, at the beginning, I think about 10 years ago, there was this uh, fascination of becoming someone else. Like Loblaw was fascinated by Walmart and wanted to become Walmart. With Amazon being a threat right now, I'm not sure I see that again. Like I see grocers trying to create their own identity and they're starting to be, to feel very comfortable with that identity. All grocers in Canada are a little bit different and I think they're comfortable with that, which is great. We should talk about Amazon in the grocery space and then we'll kind of, kind of move on is, uh, you know, they've opened up. Now, they've had their Amazon Go, which is more like a convenience store, but now they've opened up three or four full-line grocery stores yeah. uh, in the U.S. Um, and, you know, grocery's been evasively, evasively successful, so to speak. Of course, they own Whole Foods, uh, which is at the one end of the market. Uh, but now you see Amazon more, more in the U.S. Of course, they've got, what, 14 Whole Foods stores here in Canada. So uh, somebody something to keep an eye on, but really... Um, you know, everybody wants to be a grocer until they're a grocer. It's a, t- it's a yeah, tough Yeah, I mean, uh, business, for years right? now, we've heard we've heard rumors about, you know, a, a new player coming into the Canadian marketplace. But uh, I, I, I think the complexity of our market is underappreciated. It's, it's, it's yes. being a grocer. Well, targets, can't... targets certainly appreciated it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a tough business, and and so yeah. there's only 38, 39 million people in one of the largest countries in the world to to make it happen is not easy. The the one player that I think we should keep an eye on is Kushtal. I mean, Kushtal uh, yeah, looked yeah. at Carrefour, of course, in Europe, and and failed. I don't know if they've given up on that. They're looking at partnerships and doing some business with uh, with uh, European-based grocers. But I wouldn't be surprised if uh, if Kushtal, 
uh, makes a move at some point in the grocery business in Canada. Uh, oh, that's that's, 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 that's a player that I'm watching right now very mm. closely. Uh, very interesting. All right. Well, listen, oh, yeah. we wish we wish, wish everyone in the deal uh, much success, continued success. We wish the best. I mean, I think for Longo's employees, they they now have, uh, you know, if they choose the executive level, they can start, you know, working in different formats and get experience in everything from discount to specialty. So, I, you know, I, you know, wish, wish everyone the best and and Keep since close, yesterday, uh, I, uh, I was I was asked, "Oh, are 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 we going to see a bunch of layoffs at Longos now?" Honestly, I don't think so. If you're if you're an employee of Longos, uh, you shouldn't you shouldn't start rewriting your resume anytime soon. I, I think you're you'll be fine, and and I suspect that Empire will be very respectful towards the legacy of the Longo family for a very long time. Yeah. Well, in fact, and, and I would I would say there's probably upside, uh, neutral to upside, and the upside is you know get your resume ready because now you've got a wide variety of formats that you may want to choose to you know explore as a buyer, right? Maybe you want to be a buyer That's in the right. discount category and round out your skills. So, That's true. No, I, That's true. You know, I think I think there's I think there's uh, mostly upside. You know, it's going to change, right? Things will change, but uh, mostly I think neutral to better. Anyway, so again. Uh, we wish him much luck. Um, just before we get to our interview with Carl, I wanted to, I noticed you you posted something about, uh, you know, just talking about uh, Buttergate a little bit. You posted <laughs> something that's, <laughs> that seemed to be actually a little bit favorable to the dairy farmers of Canada. They seem to have made a statement that you were, you were surprised at or pleasantly surprised at. Uh, tell us about that. Well, I mean, they, they, they did promise an investigation and uh, they made an announcement this week as to what the investigation will look like. Uh, frankly, I was skeptical at the very beginning because they are going to be investigating themselves. And that's right. the reality. But they've, uh, they actually gave the group the opportunity to design their own mandate, which is interesting i thought they mm-hmm. wanted to they would they would have wanted to to really scope the mandate out very carefully that's te- that tends to be the dfc way of doing things because it's all about image it's all about the message uh but now they're empowering the group to actually design the mandate which i thought was very interesting the other interesting thing that i that i found is that you you look at the group of people on that committee on that investigating committee and, uh, of course, most of them are funded by the DFC. I mean, they do have a lot of money and they do support a lot of research in this country. I've always argued that they're, they're supporting the wrong research because it's all about yields and dairy genetics. It should be about how all of these practices are impacting food quality in the end to consumers. But they disclose all the funding. I honestly, Michael, I was very surprised. They were very, uh, they, they, they were very forthcoming about who is being funded by them. We're starting to see, I think, a group that wants to be more transparent and more accountable towards the Canadian public. And on that committee also, uh, the representative of food processors is actually on there, uh, Mathieu Frigon, which is, again, and Mathieu Frigon, as you know, Michael, the processors, their processors have asked for a ban of palmites uh, two, three weeks ago. Yeah, so it's we, gonna we be talked about that with uh, we talked about that with uh, what turned out to be our most popular episode ever with ever. Uh, our conversation yeah. with uh, with Mark Taylor from uh, Lactalis, right? So I, I'm I'm I was pleasant to surprise. In fact, our lab uh, just submitted a report to uh, the Dairy Farmers of Canada outlining you know some of our findings, and we've been working with the University of Guelph testing different 
butter. Uh, it's 17 different samples altogether. Uh, I'm not going to disclose exactly what the results are, but they, they were very interesting. The one concern that I have is that their dairy farmers of Canada uh, appear to completely disregard all the research related to palmatic acids and, and the use of palmite uh, in dairy, which could impact butter quality. There's a lot of literature on this, and they've actually said there's no science on this issue, which is not true. So we've we've also reported that to the DFC, telling them that they should – science is not a buffet. I mean, you don't pick right. yeah. articles to support a narrative. That's not how science works. Science is about – uh, an entire body of work without discriminating against any sort of science whatsoever. Well, I'm sure, as I've said many times, I'm sure we'll come back to this as it, as it continues to evolve. It was great to hear Mark's, uh, the biggest processor's uh, oh, yeah. perspective, and, and great to hear your perspective. It sounds like the file, so to speak, is, is moving forward. Well, listen, uh, let's move off that and, and on to our great interview with Carl Heinrich from uh, Richmond Station, one of the most accomplished chefs in the country. Uh, so let's have a listen to that. Carl, welcome to the Food Professor Podcast. How are you doing this morning? Yeah, not bad, Michael. Thanks. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, listen, it's a real treat to have you on. Uh, Estelle Van and I, you know, we've had this, what's this, episode 22. Uh, we've had farmers, we've had regulators, we've had all kinds of different people on, politicians. Uh, we've had one chef, but we've never had a chef of your caliber and a restaurateur as well. That's right. Into one. Uh, so we're really excited uh, to have the conversation. Lots of interesting issues uh, to go after. Why don't we jump right in and start with where we always start? Tell us a bit about yourself, your your personal professional journey, and about uh, and about Richmond Station as well as 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 a restaurant. Sure. Uh, well, just to first off, uh, thanks for um, for the hard work you guys are both doing for this industry. Um, I think everybody benefits from it, and more conversations based around food and agriculture and business and the economy of the restaurant industry is so is so necessary and so needed. So I really appreciate both of you for your hard work here. I just, I really love food <laughs> and I love restaurants and, and I really just enjoy hospitality. I was, I've never done mm-hmm. anything else as far as a job, uh, than, than working in restaurants. Uh, when I was a, when I was a kid, my mother was a single mother and I have two sisters and she was working, uh, often a few jobs at a time. And it was, it was on us often to, to make sure that there was dinner on the table. Mm-hmm. And I started cooking in my mother's kitchen when I was 11 years old. And, and I liked it. And I've always been a little bit, um, I don't want to say OCD, but I was very particular. And <laughs> if my mom said, you know, this is the way that you boil the hot dogs. That's the way I boiled the hot dogs. Um, or, or this is the way you make the meatballs. I did it that way every time. And I wanted to make it better every time. Right. And uh, when, I was, uh, when I was a little bit older, I had a, a knee injury. Uh, and how I was old really were you into when sports. that happened? I was young, like 13 years old. I was really into sports at the time. And my mom looked at me and she said, you're an asshole. You've got to get out of the house. I'm going to get you a job. (laughs) And so I started dishwashing when I was, when I was just 13. I mean, just family restaurants. And then, uh, um, it sort of grew from there, but I, I always just really gravitated toward the restaurant industry. I love the culture. I love the the teamwork in a lot of ways, it was like being on a sports team when you're in a kitchen and when you're in a restaurant, everybody working different positions for the same common goal. And at the end of the day, you turn the lights off and you go home, right? Just the way the clock runs out on a game. And uh, I went to culinary school, to the Stratford Chef School. Um, I trained in New York City with Daniel Balud for 
uh, four years or two visas. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I did a little traveling into Europe and, and moved back to Canada when I was 23. And um, uh, I've been in Toronto now for about 11 years. Uh, how Richmond long were you in St- Europe for? Oh, just, just for a short stint, a couple of months. And uh, I knew that it was probably my only chance to, uh, to see European three-star Michelin uh, while I had mm. those, those um, connections. Uh, I, I'd grown pretty quickly in the ranks at, with Danielle and in his company there. And uh, when I said, hey, you know, I'd like to go see Georges Blanc at Vonas, he said, great, let me call. <laughs> Yeah. So, wow. so I got to see Fantastic. some great restaurants out there, some great bistros, um, some great three star, some great one star. I left with a very clear idea of of the food that I wanted to pursue f- for my career, um, and and I, as much as I appreciated the the highest end of fine dining, I realized that going back to my roots and cooking the food that I would cook for my family when I was a kid, um, that always stuck with me. And, and I grew up on the west coast of Canada. I grew up on Vancouver Island for the most of my childhood. And we had a great herb garden uh, in, the, in the yard. We, had, uh, we always had a vegetables. We had a great strawberry patch. There were wild blackberries all around. And there was always good food on the table. Now, we didn't have a ton of money. We didn't eat extravagantly. A lot of food came out of the freezer. But we cooked from scratch. After my, my training and my schooling and my staging and, and, and traveling... I knew that what I wanted to cook was food that made people happy. I wanted to work in an environment that was really inviting and not just for those that could afford it because they had an enormous amount of money. Uh, I knew that I wanted to cook food that was sincere and had provenance. Mm -hmm. And for me, that always started with ingredients. And since I've been in Ontario now, uh, I've, I've spent a lot of time getting to know producers, farmers, cooking whole animal and and really cooking from scratch. And when it comes to Richmond Station, just making sure that we're having fun at the same time and that we're hiring people that, are, that really want to be there and really care about hospitality. It was the first time I'd, I'd ever owned a business, my first venture into entrepreneurship, but I can tell you that it works. And it doesn't work because of Carl and it doesn't work because of, of Ryan and our partnership. And, and it, it works because people like good food and they like good hospitality. And that model is has been a great model for us. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, one thing you jumped over, I just want to touch on, you wound up on some kind of TV show. Um, and I think it was kind of, it feels like it was a bit of an accelerant, you tell me, to, to your career, both, uh, you know, certainly from a, from a notoriety or from a prominence perspective. But tell us uh, for a minute or two, talk about that, your experience on, on, uh, in, in the world of television. Well, I was, I was 25 when I applied for Top Chef Canada. I, I was in the States. I was living in New York when the first seasons of, of Top Chef America came out, one and two and three, and I was hooked. I loved the show. And I, I, I remember watching the show. I mean, I would have been quite young back then, but um, and just thinking, God, there's no way. Like, there's no <laughs> way you could put somebody into this position and imagine them, that they would thrive. Successful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do, you, do you enjoy the aspect of competition? I do. Yeah, yeah. I, I really do. I, I love playing games, and and I don't mind. You know, I don't mind losing. I just I love playing <laughs> games. I've I've got two kids now, and we play snakes and ladders. I taught my son how to play chess the other day, and um, win or lose, I just love I love the action. I love the sport. Um, 
so when it came to Top Chef, the first winner of season one, uh, of, of, season one of, of Top Chef Canada, uh, Dale McKay, I, I'd worked with him uh, not too long uh, before he won. And I looked at the contestants on the show and I said, you know what, I probably wouldn't win. But uh, the restaurant I was at, Marvin, it was uh, just down the alley from Insight Studios, which was the production company for Top Chef Canada. Mm-hmm. And the producer came in often, and he would sit at our chef's table and said, you should apply for this show. A few of my colleagues in the restaurant looked at me and said, you should apply for this show. And so I, I talked to my girlfriend and, and, and uh, my, my friends at the time and, and said, you know, well, maybe I'll give it a shot. Who knows? But it's a grind, man. I mean, it's, it's, it's six weeks. There's, I mean, it's 16 contestants. There was no phones, no, no, no TV, no internet. You were totally secluded. It was, it was hard. Wow. And, and um, I think at the end of the day, I won not just because my food was better. I don't look at that show and say I was the best cook on that show, but I look at that show and say I was able to play the game. And uh, yeah. I think that prevailed at the end. Let's get into talking about about uh, consumers let's talk about the era that we're in today i'm you know no need for a history lesson about what's happened uh, in covid we're all well aware but when you in the before time um you know pre-covid how were you seeing the evolution of what consumers were eating and where i'm going with this is is you know during this covid era what do you think is going to change you know more people are eating at home does it make them more discerning does it make them just desperate um, maybe they're treating themselves more, maybe they're having higher fat food, let, you know, no, more treats. But as you think about your menu today, you know, before today and in the future, any, any thoughts on how you might adjust to that within your concept? It's a great question. And I'm, I'm really curious to see how all of this plays out. I'm, I'm totally honest with you. I think when it comes to the economy of restaurants right now, I think certainly the worst is yet to come. Frankly, for, from the restaurant tour point of view, the hand that we've been dealt right now is a shitty deal, but it's a deal that we can play. We have enough cards in our deck to, to choose from to, to, to make sure that we get through this time. Uh, I can't say the same for a lot of people in the industry as a whole right now, and not just restaurateurs, but restaurant workers who have been laid off for a year, restaurant suppliers who entered the lockdown, the first lockdown a year ago with a million dollars in accounts receivable, all of which on credit, which restaurants saying that they wouldn't pay. I'm thinking about farmers who very much relied on restaurants to buy food from them. And, and in this time, restaurants, not ours specifically, but a lot of them have been focused on how do I cut these costs and, and yeah. buying good local organic food from people that you know is, is certainly one way to do that. And, and um, for the listeners, just because not everyone is in Canada and everyone's different, a different situation from coast to coast, in Toronto, I think you've been closed probably since Toronto restaurants have been closed since uh, October. Like it's been a long, yeah. long haul. Just And it, where, well, where Sylvain is, of course, in Halifax, yeah. it's a little more normal. Um, but so, you know, it, it, it is, you know, the order of magnitude is, is quite dramatic. Absolutely. Right? It's, yeah. it's, it's interesting, man. It's, it's totally interesting. I have a friend I was talking to who's from Egypt the other day. He has a lot of family back home, and they're having a really hard time right now with this virus because the government is not supporting any of its civilians, which means that shops have to stay open because people need to go to work because if they don't go to work, right. they're not going to eat that day. We have this luxury in Canada of being very well supported by all levels of government. In Toronto, you know what Richmond Street looks like between Young and Bay. It's a drag race for a lot of cars, but 
the city put a patio out there for us last year. They took off the entire curb lane on Richmond Street on the yeah. south side. That was a huge benefit for us. We, our business would have really struggled without that last year, and we'd have had a lot more staff that wasn't on payroll. We have been receiving wage subsidy since the wage subsidy program was in play. We've received rent subsidy. So there's a lot of benefits and subsidies and help out there that restaurateurs and small businesses are able to grab. What I'm looking at, and, and frankly, they had to, because if we're, forced, if we're forced to close our business, and like you said, now it's yeah. been about four months of that, if we're forced to close our business, you better make sure that <laughs> you support us at the same time. So what I'm looking ahead is, is at is restaurants are going to reopen. The lockdown is going to go away. The restrictions yeah. are going to go away. The subsidies are going to go away. And at the end of the day, tourism is still going to be down. The economy is still going to be in a recession. And we're, restaurants are not going to see 100% of the revenues that they used to have. It's going to take a while to get back there. It might take a year. It might take two years. But in that time, what are they going to do? Because it's, it's, it's no secret that the average restaurant is not very profitable. So if you're already not very profitable in normal times, what happens when your revenue is down by 10 20%? Personally, we're ready for that. We're excited about making some great changes in our business and for this industry. But um, we're also cognizant of, hey, there's going to be the hard work is still ahead of us. And just, just to your, your point earlier about um, you know, where we were and where we're going to be, a year ago, we were in this sort of strange golden age bubble in restaurants. You could open any restaurant that you wanted to open. You could spend $30 million doing so. Um, you could hire whoever you wanted to hire. And in a lot of ways, too, it was an employee's market because there were so many restaurants to choose from. It became really hard to find quality staff. And this was something that chefs and restaurant owners complained about constantly. In, in so many ways, the industry is, is going to change. Certainly, we're going to get to a place when we do reopen where we have, a, a, as, a, as a restaurateur, we have many more talented people out there willing to work. Um, and so we have a great opportunity if, if we can afford to hire them. Um, and at the same time, I think that people are going to be really wary of how much money they spend. I mean, we saw this in 2008, 2009, and that's when, in, in Toronto anyways, uh, fine dining kind of disappeared. That's where pastry departments kind of disappeared. Garmage cooks were now putting the pies on the plates, and restaurants had to get creative, and restaurants had to get smaller. And we were just getting back into that like I said, golden era of we can do whatever we want and then we get a slap down again. So I think restaurateurs and chefs are going to have to be very creative coming out of the next few years. But Sylvain, you've called it the great reset in terms of the structure of restaurants and the industry. Talk about that a bit. Yeah, I actually look at uh, the great reset very positively. Uh, so if you look at uh, uh, recent numbers that came out of StatsCan, uh, if you compare Q4 2019 with Q4 2020, uh, sales in food service dropped 32%. Okay. And I agree with Carl. Actually, I, I don't think we've seen the worst of it. So, uh, the great, we're in the middle of the great reset right now. It's going to last for a while, but coming out of it, I actually think that not only, uh, there'll, there'll be space for innovation, but we're also going to be dealing with a different clientele. And I wanted to ask uh, Carl a question about that. I mean, uh, people have been cooking like a lot. <laughs> so as a, as a chef, as an entrepreneur, like how, how, 
How are you going to see the marketplace? Uh, do you think that food literacy is going to be an impact? Do you think that, uh, that people will be coming into your restaurant uh, being a little bit more sophisticated in terms of what they're looking for with ingredients, expectations? What are you, what are you expecting uh, coming out of this pandemic? I don't get out much right now, but uh, I, you know, everybody that I talk to, um, not just in the industry, but friends back home in BC and, and around the city and my colleagues across the industry, you're right. Everybody is cooking more. Nobody I know is thriving right now. <laughs> Nobody I know is really happy about having to cook three square meals a day for themselves and their family. No, every, everybody I know is very much excited about getting out into a restaurant. <laughs> I mean, going and, and, and it's, it's the tactile things. It's the sitting down at somebody else's table. It's being given a menu that you can hold in your hand and not have to read a bloody tablet. It's, it's being spoken to from, by, by a person and being served upon and being in somebody else's space. These are things that maybe we didn't appreciate as much before because there were mm -hmm. endless opportunities to get those experiences. Yeah. But yeah. people are sick of ordering their food for delivery off of Uber Eats. They want to go out to a restaurant. And yeah. so I don't think that will ever change. I think that certainly people are cooking at home more now than they ever have. And I'll be honest with you, I don't think that's a bad thing. I really appreciate that. And, and specifically for, for kids, seeing mom and dad having to cook every day. I think that's a great thing. Kids are coming out of school now Sorry. not <laughs> knowing how to put food on the table for themselves, not knowing how to put food on the table for their families eventually. And we've seen this incredible illiteracy in the kitchen uh, in the past few years. And I think that this is going to kick that in the butt a little bit. So I think people appreciate the value of food more now than they ever have. But I think they're going to take that first chance to get out to a restaurant safely um, and, and use it. I, I agree. I mean, I was actually speaking at the RC show. I don't know if, Michael, you saw the, our segment, but uh, I certainly agree with you, uh, Carl. A more educated, uh, appreciative uh, clientele will just make that connection much better as you go through, as you experience uh, dining in someone else's place, <laughs> which is, you know, feels foreign right now because we've been, uh, we've been going through this, uh, this pandemic for 12 months now. But, uh, I would say that absolutely, I think there's some clear positives coming out of this. What about, uh, I mean, uh, I hate to say this word that uh, pivoting, but, uh, as an entrepreneur looking at Richmond station, looking at your business model, Is there a fit there with home delivery? Uh, how do you see this evolve? I mean, there's been some discussions around extra fees, the cost to use some of these apps. Uh, restaurateurs uh, in different cities are getting together to develop new apps, to counter uh, some of the big players uh, uh, who are charging a lot. Uh, but this whole concept of pivoting and and this omni-channel approach as a restaurant uh, operator how, how do you see that evolve over time after the pandemic two things one just on the on the third party platforms here that's the cost of doing business if any restaurant out there wants to create their e-commerce website and find ways to get their meals delivered sometimes at a hundred a night go for it but that's going to be very tricky and those platforms already exist And if you want to use them, you have to pay for them. Now, that being said, 
Some of them are more user-friendly than others. Some of them cost more than others as a percentage of the, of the bill. And it's up to you to decide if you want to use them or not. But at the same time, let's say Richmond Station didn't use any of those third-party platforms. We created our own e-commerce. We, we figured out our delivery. The only way for somebody to order that food is to find us and to, to seek us out. We, we're on Uber Eats. Richmond Station is on Uber Eats. And I can tell you that eight out of t- every 10 orders that we get come from Uber Eats. Not because it's promoted on our website, but be- that's because that's the tool that people use. If we didn't use Uber Eats, uh, we, we, we use Ritual as well. And if somebody wants to go and order food for their house for delivery or to come pick it up, you go on our website, you press the order your takeout here right now, that's going to go to our Ritual page. But Ritual is going to be one out of, 10, out of every 10 order, which tells me that the, the marketplace, the, there's a clear market here, there's, there's clear advertising here, there's a benefit to being on a platform like Uber Eats that I wouldn't get those sales if I, if I wasn't working with them. As far as the cost goes, it's, it's just the cost of doing business and it's up to us to figure that out. We're going to have to figure out a way for you to deliver to Halifax, as far as I'm concerned. Well, <laughs> tricky. <laughs> but... <laughs> But we've done it. <laughs> you've done it? Well, it's, 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 I don't, What's and I don't love it. What's the wackiest thing you've done so far in the last 12 months? Oh, God, geez. Um, <laughs> Great question. There, there are a lot of things that we're going to take away from this, from this past year. We've had to pivot, like you say, constantly. And especially in early 2020 there, we were throwing everything at the wall. And it was bloody exhausting, man, to... to figure out ways to be creative constantly. And, and a lot of the ideas were dumb and a lot of the ideas were great. And a lot of the ideas broke even, but they all took the same amount of work. Uh, at the end of the day, we had to replace 100% of our revenue. We were dine-in and offsite event only, which means we had to be there in person and put food on a plate before this pandemic. And now we can't do any of that. It's against the law. So our entire revenue model has changed 100%. And we're able to, we were able to figure that out, but I could tell you that there's a lot of people around the industry that are bloody tired of constantly having to figure that out. So um, it's, it's been a challenge, and we found some ways that are going to stick, some, some, some lines of revenue that are going to stick with us for a long time. And, and just to get back to your question again, I think that going forward, restaurants like ours that were sit down, will find other ways to get income into the restaurant and not just rely on one model. Um, nobody saw this coming. I didn't see this coming. And even when it did come, I didn't think it was going to last this long. And now that we're hopefully on the upswing, we know that going forward, our revenue and our sales will have to be diversified. We probably still offer some, some takeout and delivery. We probably still will do virtual events. We'll probably still do some sort of New Year's Eve and Valentine's take-home meal package and maybe one for Christmas and one for Easter. So there is always going to be another tier of revenue for us. Reason why I know you uh, is because you're a bit of a social social justice activist <clears throat> in industry, I guess, uh, with your position on, on no tipping. And I, and I want you to talk to us about, about your position on no tipping. And, and I know you're very passionate about it. Of course, I, I, I didn't know much about tipping economics uh, until uh, I started to look into no, the no tipping policy and and uh, and read some of your comments about that. I just want to get your thoughts on on no tipping and and what's 
I mean, I because you're 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 a trailblazer, uh, and it's it is a sensitive issue in the industry. And uh, I actually really admire your guts uh, gutsy move in coming out and say this is something that we need to do. This is something we believe in as as business people in the industry. Uh, I just want to get your thoughts on on no tipping in general and what's what, what's the rationale for you for your business and what could be the rationale for the rest of the industry. How much time do we have, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> I know, yeah, because uh, we're, we're lengthy, but this is, I think, a very <clears throat> important topic. Well, I'll, I'll give you the, the, the bullet points here. Um, number one with a bullet, this industry, restaurant industry, hotel industry, the hospitality industry, is a career. And it's a career for millions of people across this country. It's a career for millions and millions of people across the world. And... For so many people out there, it is not seen as a career. It is something you do for a short period of time while you're looking for your career. And that is wrong. You look in places like Europe or Australia or New Zealand or almost everywhere else in the world but North America. Hmm. Um, And are you talking about fine dining mainly or are you looking at fast food or casual, everything? Everything, everything. The thing more often, the, the, the big pin in stopping this from being a career for so many people is that it is a cash business, that employees are going to work and their earnings are uninsured, that there is no guarantee at the end of the day that you'll be able to retire, that you'll be able to buy a house, that you'll be able to raise a family, that you'll be able to get a car, that you be paid if you're sick and you can't go to work or you lose your job because of no fault of your own, like a lot of people have over the past year, there is no insurance out there. So if we look at a career professional server, and I'm going to speak modestly here in the amount of money that they make, but a year ago in a busy restaurant, let's say in downtown Toronto, you work 40 hours a week and you're going to make, let's say, $500 a week on your paycheck, but you're probably going to make $200 a day in cash tips. Some places it's a lot more than that. We're talking about $1,000 a week in cash and $500 a week on your paycheck. At the end of the day, you're making close to $80,000 a year, which is a great salary. It's a great career. It's a great profession. But at the end of the day, you lose your job and you're only eligible for the minimal amount of benefits from employment insurance. You have no CPP, you have no retirement plan, you have nothing to your name because your income was in cash and it was uninsured. Mm. And at the same time, there's an enormous issue with pay inequity in our business. Mm. And it is well understood. And that's a very important point there. And and we are just going to get to the bullet points here. I mean, there are so many. I've got another one here for you. When you go to your dentist, how much do you tip your dentist? Right. (laughs) When when you take a flight, if your airline loses your luggage, do you pay them less? No. Yeah, there's 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 a long raft. I wish I wish I could. (laughs) Well, and so and so, how about this? Um, Yeah, yeah. You're sitting down in a restaurant and you're not a big fan of the meal that you had. It was too cold. Or maybe the music was too loud. 
or maybe the temperature in the room wasn't right, or maybe the, the table next to you was too close to yours. Should your server be punished? Yeah. Are you going to tip your server less? People go into a restaurant already knowing what they're going to leave as a tip. Th- th- that doesn't change. That 18%, I think, I think you said like that 18% plus or minus a percent when you do the math. It doesn't is, change. Is, is what you see, right? Yeah. And over the I, past- I mean, let, let's talk about the other side of the coin. So the other side of the coin is consumers. Um, and this is a really germane point based on what we've been talking about is, let's, I really want to get back to restaurants. I have, will consumers on the whole accept the higher ticket price because they're paying it. It's funny. Consumers struggle with math, right? I think because you're paying it anyway, as you said, most consumers know I'm going to tip what I see on the menu is not what I'm going to pay out the door, but it's this weird logic, right? That, 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 Oh my goodness, that's an expensive meal. Is this the opportunity for a different kind of reset? This reset, this could catch on this. You know, you're going to have to have, you're going to have to attract people back to the industry. There's no question about it. Is this, is this one solution to it? This is the greatest opportunity to change anything you need to change in your business. And when it comes to if you're, if you're teetering on, I want to get rid of tipping. I know it's the best thing to do morally, blah, 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 blah. It yeah. is the time. And if not frankly, now, when, right? It, for, yeah. for us in the past, we, we struggled with this because we wanted to go no tipping for a long time. And, and we really wanted to follow Danny Meyer's suit in 2016. Um, yeah. But at the end of the day, his issues and the reason that he went hospitality included were very different than ours. People, the reasons people go no tipping, because they want to pay their cooks more, because they want to be able to pay their management more, because they want to battle pay inequity, because they want to be able to promote people. We were able to figure that out by just changing the tip-out structure. But that didn't, that didn't solve the issue of uninsured income, which is a very difficult thing to explain to your staff when they're making a good amount of money in cash. Now that's a very easy thing to explain, the benefits of insured income, the benefit of having a job where you can see growth. When we get back to normal, whenever that is, we're going to have so many different roles and positions in our front of house. It's not just you're a support staff or you're a server or you're a manager. And, And just to be clear there, going from server to manager usually means that you're working longer, harder hours, and making less money. So that, that transition was very difficult. Now what we're seeing is, in our business anyways, we have many levels of servers. We have many levels of support. We have many levels of host. We have many levels of management. And there's a very clear system for, hey, if I'm better at my job, or hey, I want to make more money, this is exactly how I'm going to do it. Not, if I want to make more money, I'm going to work Saturday instead of Monday. Right. What, we're, what we've done in our business anyways is we've said to everybody, this is now a career. Now there are room, there's room for everybody to grow in our business, just like, frankly, <laughs> any other business in any other industry out there. Well, Carl, you're, you're a, a wonderful advocate and articulate advocate for change in the industry. You've, uh, you know, con- I wish you much continued success once we get past the COVID era, it, getting at this industry in so many ways, uh, such a, a great insight into the industry. So, uh, listen, let's leave it there. Sylvan, any, any last words? I mean, should we ask him if he thinks the butter is harder in the restaurant? 
Um, <laughs> that's Buttergate that uh, we're all over. But that's uh, right, yeah. I just want to thank uh, Carl. I think both Carl and Ryan are, are visionaries. And, uh, and I suspect that based on some of his positions, he's received some criticism uh, within industry, I'm sure, because uh, this is how people work in the food business. Uh, change is never easy. Uh, and so, cause I've, as an academic and Michael would know, I, I do advocate for change myself, uh, with, uh, with different policies that we have in Canada. So I, I, I absolutely appreciate, uh, some of the some of the criticism you probably have received and, and it takes a lot of guts so i really admire your work continue on your journey i'm looking forward to see uh, how things uh, how things go and uh, hopefully hopefully one day you'll see me in your restaurant <laughs> can't wait thanks dr Charles. all right appreciate it all right well thanks carl and and uh, uh so van maybe that's our first meal together back in toronto so i think we've uh, we got a date you got it all right thanks carl <laughs> Take care, guys. Bye-bye. All right. Well, that was a great interview with Carl. Uh, you know, again, set up. Thanks, uh, courtesy to the folks at Restaurant Canada. He was on the stage at uh, their show. You know, I think you knew Carl. You certainly knew of him because I think you mentioned him early on, particularly around this social justice tipping issue. Yeah? Yeah. I've never spoken to him live. Uh, some of my... Uh some members on my team actually did contact him last year when he went public about the no tipping policy, which I thought was very interesting. And frankly, at the time, I didn't know much about it. But the more I learned about it, the more I thought, wow, this could be an opportunity to, to make the hospitality industry better. Uh, I mean, I, I have kids, you have kids, and, and the hospitality industry is often the first first job most people have i mean uh i think one one in five canadians their first job is in in the agri-food industry and a lot of them are in the restaurant business and uh and unfortunately for many canadians their first experience is not a great one my own son actually works in a restaurant and he's 18 years old uh his experience so far has been great because i think he works for a very good company but Unfortunately, for a lot of people, it, it's not great, and they, they move on to other careers. Uh, Carl's ambition yeah. is really to make uh, his own industry a a career of a choice. A career, yeah, yeah, yeah a career exactly. like a, like a, like a trick, not something to get you from first to third year in university, uh, but something that you you know, and and I think like in many ways, and and it's a it's an it's a North American discussion point, so. Um, I think it's something we'll come back to again. Alexandra mentioned it in her profile. Yeah, um, I want to conclude on I want to conclude on one thing. Uh, you guys, uh, AgriLab put out some research. Uh, talk about that briefly. Uh, what what's uh, in the news and take us through that for a, a couple of minutes. Well, it's it's the uh, coronavirus anniversary, or I know there's a term for uh, for celebrating. I don't know if we should be celebrating one year of this pandemic, but anyways, designating. Memo- yeah, I, I don't know if a celebration is the right. Uh, <laughs> it's been right a year, term, but it's uh, been I a year. Unbelievable. And unlike unlike a a very similar event like uh, the shuttle or nine eleven, where were you when? Uh, I mean the. The pandemic is is all it, it, the, the shock spread has spread over several weeks, and so I think people are are thinking about what ha- what happened last year, a year ago, 
And uh, so we wanted to go back and ask Canadians. So we saw empty shells. You were concerned. So how concerned are you now, 12 months in? And we were very happy to report last week that uh, that confidence levels are very high in Canada, extremely high. In fact, uh, over 83% of Canadians actually trust the food supply chain. And I suspect that 12 months ago, it wasn't we weren't there at all. And so the food industry really delivered, did a very good job uh, in, in reassuring the public. I don't think food access is a concern. The, the one thing that we've noticed is that both Alberta and BC's confidence levels are very low compared to the rest of the country. And so I, I think there's, there was something there with media, perhaps, and some of the issues with High River and Red Deer most recently with the Holly Mail. Right. Plant, so right. I suspect it really affected people's perceptions because that's what we measure, right? Perceptions. The one thing that was really interesting is that we saw a confidence paradox. So a lot of people are still concerned about other people stockpiling. So yeah. on the one hand, people are trusting the food supply chain and food access. On the other, they wonder whether or not their neighbors uh, or fellow Canadians will start stockpiling again. So that's very interesting. Uh, confident, confidence in the food chain, the grocery skeptical about their neighbors. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Emotions right. are, are very powerful, you know. If you don't, well, last I, year we didn't know much about the virus. We didn't know much about how public health officials would react. We didn't know whether or not we we're going to be allowed back to the grocery store anytime soon. How long, how soon, what's the end point, all these things. Right? Exactly. It was a moment in time. All right. Well, listen, great episode. Let's uh, let's wrap it up, bring it to a close. Uh, great uh, interview with Carl. And uh, so thanks again to the folks at Omnos, Omnovos uh, for being our presenting sponsor. And if you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, your favorite podcast platform. Please rate and review and be sure to recommend to a friend or colleague in the grocery food service or restaurant industry. I'm Michael LeBlanc, producer and host of the Voice of Retail podcast and a bunch of other stuff. And I'm Sylvain Chalabois. Have a safe week and have a safe week, everyone. Talk to you next time. Take care.